This is Holly Fry from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander. With seating for up to eight passengers and available panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with the whole family. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. The following ad is sponsored by Pets Best Insurance Services. Pets come into our lives in many ways. Shelters, breeders, or unexpected encounters. But no matter how you found your pet, they become our perfect match. Unfortunately, finding the right pet insurance plan can be hard. That's where Pets Best comes in. With a little information about you and your pet, Pets Best will recommend a plan that meets your needs and budget. Visit PetsBest.com to learn more today. Your perfect pet deserves the perfect coverage. PetsBest.com. Looking for hair removal tools that not only deliver smooth results, but also make you feel totally in control? Enter Conair Girlbomb. They're like your secret weapons for smooth, sleek results. Made just for us. From the ultimate Girlbomb grip to the professional-grade blades, say goodbye to settling for less. With Conair Girlbomb, you get the precision and power that used to only be exclusive to men's tools. So take your hair removal routine to the next level with Conair Girlbomb, available at Walgreens. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Bob Left Guts Podcast. My guest today is Stevie Van Zandt. He's got a new autobiography, Unrequited Infatuations. Steven, glad to have you here. Hey, Bob, good to be with you, man. Okay, let's start from the beginning. Your friends, what do they call you? Miami, little Steven, Steve, Steven. <laughs> Stevie is fine. <laughs> no, but what do they call you? They call me Stevie, yeah. You know. Okay, Steve or Stevie or Steven? Stevie, mostly. Stevie, mostly. Growing up, were you always Stevie? Yeah. <laughs> okay. So one thing you mentioned in the book an offhand comment that if your finances were better, then maybe you could have afforded children. Is this something you consciously thought of? Well, yeah, to an extent. I've never felt really stable enough uh, to have children. Uh, I never gave it a serious thought as to, um, you know, should I I find a way to do that or not? Uh, But... um, as my life has unfolded, it's been rather unstable, and I really do feel uh, uh, one should feel a, some stability before one has some children, you know, my own feeling. Any regrets that you didn't have them? I don't know. Um, not, not really. You know, it just uh, wasn't, wasn't in the cards, this, this life, you know, maybe next life. <laughs> I don't know. Okay. Do you believe in reincarnation? Are you a religious person, or are you just saying that? I'm just, I'm just saying that. <laughs> I'm not a religious person. Uh, you know, I, I just, uh, I, I really, I really don't have any thoughts about it. I, I, I um, I, I think it's probably because of my own arrested development that I, 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 I never felt like I quite grew up myself. So, uh, I, I'm not sure I w- would ever be qualified to. Uh, for that for that very important role in life 
Okay, you wrote the book. It's now out. How are you dealing with the reception? I got to tell you the truth. It's been amazing, uh, amazingly well received. Um, more than any album, and, and I've <laughs> and, I, <laughs> and I've always gotten good album reviews. You know, I got no complaints. But uh, this is something. I mean, the response has been remarkable. To be honest, uh, I mean, didn't expect the you know New York Times bestseller list and uh, London Times and L.A. and I mean, it's every everywhere is, is doing well, and uh, and the reviews have been spectacular. It's just one of those things that I didn't really think about i just did it but but um the, the, the results have been uh, amazing so far yeah, great and now that the book is finalized is there anything that you would want to go back and change um no i caught a couple of errors when i did the audio book you know which uh makes me wonder if if, if those things are done in the wrong order <laughs> you know i think most most books are done that way you know you do the audio book last uh, I wonder though if I do another book. I think I'll do the audio book first because you you find. I mean, we've been through this thing seven, eight, nine times. Me and my editor and my publisher and so many uh, and, uh, and others. And uh, there was still like a a, a dozen mis mistakes left in it, you know. But so that was you know no, nothing, nothing major, nothing major. I mean, were it, they grammatical mistakes? Yeah, what kind yeah, of mistakes? yeah, just yeah, stupid, stupid things. Yeah, no, nothing. You know, there was there was one serious thing where, uh, like, the wrong album. Uh, um, what was it? Uh, uh, you know, somebody, some some band's album was was the wrong album, which uh, which wasn't my mistake. It was it was made by. See, once it, I mean, you you know the process, but once you go through your own process, it goes to an editorial process with the publisher, and sometimes they will change things thinking that they're correcting something when they're not so it's all very very uh it, it, the, the book world is a trip man i gotta tell you the truth it, it's a different it's a different world and it takes some it takes some adjusting you know you gotta you gotta give up some of the usual total control that um that i usually demand i mean i, I just i just did eight days in europe and the book is different in every country. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I mean, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna try and collect them all because you know, I mean, there are there are countries that change the title without mentioning it to you. <laughs> I was like, damn, that's uh, that's different. Yeah, you know, so you know, you work very hard to, to get everything exactly right. You know, when you're making albums, you know that everything from the art to the graphics to uh, you know you name it and to go from country to country and, and having it be different every single time has been pretty pretty remarkable and you know one country left off the the dylan blurb you know one country <laughs> left off the mccartney blurb you know like you know uh, italy just changed the title <laughs> okay you have all those blurbs in the book are you self-conscious about asking for those or you have no problem? Um, I, I didn't ask. I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. You know, um, I don't, I, I didn't ask anybody. I think the publisher, the publisher mostly uh, did it. Um, I'm trying to think of uh, either the publisher or my managers would, uh, would, you know, talk to, talk to people. And, uh, uh, my publisher said he'd been, you know, uh, friendly with Bob Dylan's manager and 
they, you know, they send every single book to him and <laughs> it's the first time he's ever actually done a blurb that they can remember. And nobody can remember another Bob Dylan blurb. Uh, somebody says they, they, they might've been one 40 or 50 years ago for Allen Ginsberg or somebody. Uh, so that was, that was beyond, uh, beyond belief. I mean, that was, that was so, so, so nice of him to do. And I didn't ask, um, but I did send in the book right away. I sent, I sent the book to Bruce and I sent the book to Bob because I, I didn't want it to be one of those books that's, you know, uh, any kind of gossip or, or um, I didn't want to make any Bruce news at all. And uh, some of the conversations with Bruce and Bob were, were, were intimate, private conversations. I wanted to make sure they were cool, you know, with, with those. Um, and that has been the challenge of the book because I, I know a little bit too much, you know, so it's a matter of what do you leave in, you know, what do you leave out? And, um, it's a little bit, it's a little bit, you gotta be a little bit careful about that. So in those two cases, I thought I want to, I want to check with them and, um, they, neither one of them changed one single word, which, which was, which was nice. Well, there's the code of the road, as we know. And speaking of the road, that's where you seem to run into Dylan. In the book, it seems like you don't have that extensive an interaction with him in your life. What is the truth now that we're talking? Yeah, he's just sort of a a fantastic acquaintance. <laughs> you know, it's not. I wouldn't. I wouldn't be so. Uh, you know, pretentious to, to, to say. You know, we're, we're, we're best friends. But uh, I don't know. I just think we, we just sort of like each other and run into each other every couple of years. Um, you know, we don't talk every day like, like me, and, me and Bruce do, you know, pretty much. But, um, but Bob is just uh, every time I see him, it, it, it's, it's an adventure. And uh, uh, I, I, just, I just thought they're, they're just kind of fun. They're just kind of fun encounters because he's just a fun guy. I mean, he's... Uh, you know, he's, he, in some ways, he's very, very normal, and in some ways, he he's he just uh, he just always surprises you with something. You know, so it's uh, I, I just I just love the guy. I mean, aside from him being so extraordinarily important to my work and everybody else's uh, and his place in history, but he he uh, he's just one of those fascinating cats that that uh, very proud, very proud to know him and. Uh, but I, I don't see him nearly as often as I as I as I as I wish I I wish I could. What's your favorite Dylan album? Oh, it's got to be Blonde on Blonde. In the end, I mean, you know, I, I like a lot of them, but uh, Blonde on Blonde was the one that just, uh, you know, it's it, it was just the the ultimate the ultimate uh, Dylan album, I think. A lot of people agree with you. That's really the number one of you know true fans. But I'm really a bringing it all back home guy uh. because, you know, uh, it's all right, Ma. It's transcendent. And, of <laughs> course, at this, late, at this late date, Subterranean Homesick Blues is a big deal. Everyone talks about Highway 61, but I prefer bringing it all back home. Yeah, that was uh, that's the half electric, half acoustic one, right? Right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, you know. Maybe maybe skipping the first one, but but uh, you know other than that, the first seven uh, are just remarkable. I mean, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't argue with anybody. I mean, freewheeling, you know, times they were changing. You 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 know, extraordinary things on these records. I mean, complete complete. I mean, I know the words used too often, but they are game changers 
for the, the folk world. They completely changed the folk world overnight. And uh, and then as soon as <laughs> as soon as they you know they, they were kind of reluctant to accept him because he was kind of radical. Uh, and, and then as soon as they accept him, he he kind of walked away and plugged in. <laughs> because, <Right>. But but <laughs> but no, I, I talk about Subterranean Homesick Blues in in the book as the single most important. Uh, you know, two sentences in, in history of rock and roll, I, I think. Well, so first, I so certainly first. know the record. For those people who don't know the record, why don't you just give us the two lines? <laughs> well, the first the first line is, you know, because he, 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 Bob is, is a mixture of, uh, you know, playfulness and fun and, and uh, you know, just kind of... Uh, you know, he he always he's he's always wanting to make you think a little a little bit and, and has you know uh, coming from the beat poetry, the metaphor and symbolism type stuff, but also just sometimes just stream of consciousness and and he doesn't even he doesn't even intend to say anything. He just likes putting the words together. I don't think anybody loves the English language as much as Bob Dylan. He just loves the language and loves to play with it. So the first line is is this kind of that a little, a little provocative a little, a little you know which is uh, johnny's in the basement mixing up the medicine you know well what does that mean i go through like five or six things it could mean in the, in the book but you know and then the second line is, is is the is the one i'm on the pavement thinking about the government well what a weird thing to say to us, uh, you know, 13, 14, 15 year olds, you know, what, what do you mean you're thinking about the government? <laughs> Who would want to do that? Why, why would you do that? You know, uh, and th that was uh, a remarkable thing to say in, in a pop song, <laughs> you know, basically. And, and uh, it really made you think. And I've been thinking ever since, <laughs> you know. <laughs> okay, let's go back to the book for a second. Your name is on the cover. But when you go inside, the book has an editor. To what degree was the editor involved in the writing of the book, and to, or to what degree it's all yours? I wrote every single word, and, and um, uh, I, I, I try to think in the beginning, you know, because I've read so many biographies, and they all seem so similar uh, because the co-writer is doing the writing, and it's just they all become very homogenized, and I, 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 I just decided I'm not. It's not going to be me. Um, so I, I, um, I, I try to figure out how, how can I, how can I make sure that this is in my own voice? And I thought to myself, well, I'm going to picture doing the audio book, you know, and, um, uh, if I can, if I can write it the way I, you know, that I'm going to speak it, um, it might work. And so I, I explained to the publisher and to the, uh, uh, to my editor, uh, I said, listen, this, this is not going to look right. It's going to be not correct gr grammatically. It's not going to, uh, uh, it's gonna, there's going to be sentence fragments all over the place. Uh, but if you, if you read it the way I'm writing it, it'll sound like me, you know, and, and, and that's what I ended up doing. Uh, and, um, it, I think it really worked because everybody, the first thing everybody says to me, boy, I can really hear you. I hear your voice in this. And, uh, that was very important to me. Um, you know, it, it was hard for my editor because he's a co-writer and, and he had done some great books for George, for George Clinton and Brian Wilson and Questlove and I forget who else, but he's, he's really a terrific writer himself. 
And, uh, you know, I, and he did me a favor really by, by not, <laughs> by not co-writing. <laughs> and, uh, but he was very, very helpful in terms of the editing because, uh, I, I can digress, you know, with the best of a man. I mean, uh, you know, I, I, it's hard to make, it's hard to, for me to make it to a page without one story turning into another story, turning into another story, you know, and I, I wanted to keep it somewhat on the, on the right path. And most importantly, I, I wanted to maintain a balance of um the history because i witnessed everything except the first decade of rock and roll and uh and i got some thoughts on that subject um and and i've been a lot involved in a lot of craft so i wanted to make sure the craft made it into the book because uh, i thought that might be useful you know and, and and in the middle was the narrative you know so that balance of those three things was important and that's that's what i told the editor to keep an eye on I want to make sure that balance between history, the narrative, and craft, uh, you know, kind of stuck together throughout the book. I didn't want to wander too far from from any of those three things, and uh, and then and then, you know, when it came to uh, whatever the whatever I was talking about at that moment, whatever the event was, or you know, you you got to you got to provide a little context. You got to provide some environment. You got you know provide what you're thinking in that moment. And it was a question of how much, you know, for each, for each incident. That, 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 that's real tricky because, um, you know, you got to provide some or else the book becomes a list. You know, I did this, then I did that, then I did this, then I did that. You know, that's boring. So, uh, you know, you want to, you want to make it, you know, I was hoping it would end up being more like a detective novel or a Dan Brown book where, you don't know what's coming next because I didn't know what was coming next. You know, I mean, the, the first half is, is you know, pretty, pretty linear. You know, local kid from Jersey makes it to the top in rock and roll, which is a great story by itself. And, you know, I'm not, I don't want to sound ungrateful about that. That's wonderful, you know. But the second half, when I leave the East Street Band and my life has ended, you know, literally, uh, and there's no plan. And now I'm, I'm just wandering in the wilderness. I think it becomes more interesting. And, and, and now that the more universal themes start to emerge, I think, you know, the, the search for identity and the search for purpose in life and spiritual, you know, spiritual enlightenment and those kinds of things, um, that everybody can relate to. I, I just, I didn't want it to be a music book for music people exclusively. Yeah. Okay. So you had a book deal. And you gave the money back. <laughs> right. Now you have another book deal. How'd you decide to actually do it? Was it have something to do with the time of the, uh, uh, you know, shutdown of America, the world actually? And what was your process and how long did it take to do it? Were you one of those guys, you know, you sharpen your pencil every day at noon or whatever you started. So give us some of the story. Yeah, I, I think that certainly the quarantine thing uh, was the biggest factor. I, I I'm not sure it would have ever been done without that, honestly. Um, it just was a perfect opportunity. Um, a, a, a big factor was uh, the, the previous three years, 2017, 18, 19, happened to be the most productive years of my entire life. Um, I unexpectedly got back into the music business. I, did, I had no plans to do that. Like most of my life was just not planned. Uh, I got back in. I put out two new albums, which I didn't expect to do, Soulfire and Summer of Sorcery. 
I ended up releasing six album packages in those three years, which is about as productive as you can be, you know. And um, and so suddenly, I reconnected with my life's work, which I'd, you know, unconsciously abandoned for thirty years. Um, suddenly, I was you know back playing my own songs again, and uh, kind of appreciating them. Uh, I must say, for the first time, maybe. Uh, you know, first time in a long time, appreciating them in a, in a new kind of way. I, I just felt, you know, geez, this stuff was interesting. It, it has a value to it that uh, I had never really considered. There's something about the, you know, the genre I created, this rock meets soul thing that um, it kind of holds up in a funny way because it was never fashionable. You know, it was never trendy. Uh, when I did it the first time, it wasn't fashionable. So, when something's never been fashionable, it kind of makes it timeless, <laughs> you know? It gives it a timeless quality. And, uh, and, I, and I just was a little bit, a little bit struck by, by, the, by the nature of the music. And, um, and I put together this amazing band, uh, actually put together by my friend Mark Ribbler, with a couple of my old friends in it. And, and, um, and, and they just performed this stuff so well that... Uh, um, I said, well, it sounds so good. Uh, I mean, it all, it all started with, with, with this promoter in London, uh, at the end of the E street tour, 2016, he said, uh, when are you coming back to London? And I said, well, I usually, me and my wife come back every Thanksgiving, you know, for her birthday, cause she loves London so much, but this year we're coming earlier for Bill Wyman's 80th birthday. And he said, well, that that's the week I'm, of my blues festival put a band together and, 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 and headline one of the nights. And I was like, wow, well, you know, I haven't done that in 30 years. But uh, the more I thought about it, the more it sounded like fun. I said, you know what? I'll bring back the horns and uh, I'll be able to do some like Paul Butterfield stuff with the horns that nobody's, nobody ever hears that stuff. I'll do some electric flag. Nobody ever hears that stuff. You know, I'll do some you know blues stuff and then I'll do some of my own songs. And uh, when I started playing my own my own music, I was I was really really struck by it. So so we ended up well, well let's 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 make an album, and um, and the Soulfire wasn't ready to write a, a whole new album. So we did Soulfire, uh, an album of, of songs I've written for other people. And um, by accident again, somebody came by and gave us a sponsorship to tour. Uh, I had a TV show that was I was that kind of fell through. Uh, Bruce decided to do Broadway. I had nothing better to do. Um, all right, let's let's tour it, and and we start touring, and then ideas start coming to me. And uh, and Summer of Sorcery, man, a whole new album came out of a gift from the gods, you know, and and uh, you know, and, and so suddenly uh, here comes the quarantine, and I and I I felt some closure because of that. I felt the mu musically. I had a little closure on that part of my life and, uh, and you know, I had new managers first time I've ever had managers, uh, you know, which is many of the problems I run into in the book because I never had managers, uh, or manager. And, uh, and one of the managers actually suggested the end of the book, which helped me formulate, you know, okay, I got, I know the beginning, I know the end, you know, let's just tell the story and, and Try and keep it to uh, try and keep it somewhat coherent. 
because my life, uh, you know, pretty pretty crazy. Okay, so you talked about reading all the biographies. You know, Ray Davies says, or Ray Davis, they say in England, you know, give me two good reasons why I ought to stay. Tell me two music biographies that you think are great. Well, Bob Dylan's Chronicles uh, has to be number one. Um, I thought Bruce's book was great. Um, and I liked, um, I like Robbie Robertson. And, uh, and I like Levon Helms, too. Well, one book you mentioned in the book, which I love, is the Tommy James book. Oh, that thing's great. Really great. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Uh, <laughs> he's, uh, he's, he's lucky to be alive. But he, you know, <laughs> I mean, you know, that, 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 was, that was a great one. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, yeah. Okay, so how long did it take you to write your book, and how, what was the process? Uh, about a year, you know, about, about about a year of the quarantine, I would say. Um, we um, we decided, you know, I wanted I wanted to treat this thing a little bit like therapy, which it, which it really was. So I I spoke with the editor, I think three times a week for an hour or two, like Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays. So I would write over the weekend. Um, you know, I, I, I would write and, and then, and then we would discuss it and I would write, you know, uh, just do that, you know, writing constantly and discussing it like two, three times a week, uh, for various reasons, you, you know, just to make sure, again, I was maintaining this balance I wanted, um, but, uh, he, he also was a good sounding board for what people might want to know about you know um because i gotta i go there's a lot i kind of got a little bit too much uh, in my head so um you want to make sure you're, you're not boring people or, or uh, spending too much time on one subject you're making sure you're spending enough time on a subject um those kinds of basic you know limitations that you want to you want to have somebody you know, saying, you know, you're going a little too far here or not far enough there. So um, it was a con almost a constant conversation with the editor. And I really, uh, so I, you know, I was really a collaborator in a true sense of the word. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Okay, quick math. 
The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com stereo right now. NetSuite.com stereo. NetSuite.com stereo. The following ad is sponsored by Pets Best Insurance Services. Pets come into our lives in many ways. Shelters, breeders, or unexpected encounters. But no matter how you found your pet, they become our perfect match. Unfortunately, finding the right pet insurance plan can be hard. That's where Pets Best comes in. With a little information about you and your pet, Pets Best will recommend a plan that meets your needs and budget. Visit PetsBest.com to learn more today. Your perfect pet deserves the perfect coverage. PetsBest.com Okay, how come you never had a manager till now? Well, now that's the big question here, Bob. Uh, I wish, uh, I wish, I, I wish I knew. You know, I, I, I spoke to a lot of guys when I was, I was looking for a manager for the Jukes because I was managing the Jukes in the beginning, and I desperately wanted to find a manager for them before I left uh, to join the E Street Band. And uh, I got, I got him the greatest agent in the world. That was big, you know, getting him Frank Barcelona, but. Um, you know, a manager represents you, and uh, I was having trouble finding somebody that I felt okay representing me if I'm not in the room, you know? Um, and I think it has to do with my aversion to money, frankly, and, uh, and, and people whose job it is to make money. Uh, I sometimes have trouble finding a common ground with, with, with people like that. And in, in, in a manager's case, that's kind of, that's one of their main jobs is to make money. And you know what I mean? If I get, if I get that sense that money is their priority, I, I, uh, I don't trust it. I don't trust it. Uh, cause for me, uh, integrity, uh, dignity, uh, certainly the art, the work comes first, has to come first. And I realize, you know, we're always trying to, the great dilemma is, trying to find a balance between art and commerce. I understand that. And I, you know, and I never found it. I mean, <laughs> if anything, my life is the, the, you know, the triumph of art over commerce. <laughs> you know? uh, but I think, you know, when I, when I sense that somebody is just, you know, in it for the money, uh, you know, to, to some extent, uh, I, I, it just turns me off. So I think that was part of it. You know, I, I just never, Never quite found somebody. I mean, looking back, uh, that was that was a mistake. I should have, I should have, I should have just picked somebody and had them do it because um, a whole lot of opportunities were lost because because of that and and uh, not having a buffer. People people like the artist to have a buffer. They don't want to talk directly to you. You know, they just don't. 
that's just how the business works. They they want they want they want an intermediary. You know uh, that's why you know the networks. The other thing is, you know, you know, I've been through this with deals where they say insulting things. They're just negotiating, but hit me emotionally. So since since you made all your own deals, how good a negotiator are you? Certainly in retrospect. Well, that's the problem. I'm I'm very good. Uh, And it was hard to find managers that were as good. (laughs) Uh, But it wasn't the negotiating of the deals that was the problem uh, so much. in, In fact, there's advantages. There's advantages to the artist. If if you can get somebody to actually do the deal with you, uh, there's advantages to being the artist in, those, in that case uh, because they don't want to say no to you. You know, uh, so sometimes it, it actually is an advantage. Um, what's the biggest problem is it's not the negotiations as much as just not having an advocate. I mean, the gig of a manager is is advocate. You know, uh, I can sell you all day long, man. I can't sell me, you know, and and, and you need somebody selling you. And that's, that's just the truth, man. And I, I never had that. So why do you have it now? Well, I got lucky. Uh, first of all, um, I didn't, I wasn't looking for a manager at this stage of the game and my agent, uh, my music agent, one day just said, Hey, I'm going to lunch with these guys. You know, why don't you come along? Didn't even tell me who they were. And um, we're just having a conversation. And um, at some point, you know, they, they revealed that they were, you know, they were managers. And, and uh, at some point said they were interested in managing me. I said, wow, you know, you're only about 40 years too late. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but Hey, Let's let's you know, and I, and I just I just like them. I like I just like them both as two guys, and, and I and I like them personally. You know, I got to, I kind of kind of got to know them in that one conversation before uh, you know before they became my managers. And I just kind of like them, and uh, and I thought, well, you know, let's see let's see what happens here. Let, let's see what we can do because uh, I've always wanted to have a manager, so let's give it a try. Let's go back to the beginning. Okay, you know, you start in Massachusetts, but you really grow up in New Jersey. What kind of kid were you? Were you the leader of the gang? Were you a member of the gang? Were you a guy off to the side? Did you have friends? You didn't have friends? I was a small kid. Um, um, yeah, I wouldn't, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say I was the leader of a gang. I, I probably uh, had that inclination right from, you know, birth to be more of a, the side man or, or the guy, you know, off to the side or behind the guy, you know, I, I don't remember, uh, very often, uh, being the leader of a, of a gang. Uh, once in a while I find myself in that position. I remember, uh, after seeing the West side story movie, uh, we started having gangs <laughs> in, in suburban, uh, junior high school, I guess it was, let me see. What was that, 57, 59? Wasn't that movie? No, no, that movie was like 61, early 60s, right? Yeah, so I'm like 10 or whatever, whatever, whatever grade you're in, you're 10, 11. And I remember um, 
I remember I did start that gang and, 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 and during uh, lunchtime or whenever people went outside recess, uh, we would, we would have knife fights with, with pens and we'd write on each other, you know, whoever wrote the most on each other, you know, won. And, uh, and I was, the, I was the leader of that one. And of course we got busted and we got in a lot, got in a lot of trouble. Uh, but, but, um, other than that, you know, I just kind of wanted the guys, you know, uh, my, my neighbors were older. My, my, one of my best friends lived behind me, uh, was, was a year older. So, um, you know, the older guys always would be the more of the leaders in, in any situation. And, um, I don't know. I just was like a lost little kid kind of just uh, waiting for destiny to speak. I remember hating being a kid. I, I do remember that distinctly. I wanted to grow up and get on with it. And, um, and then, you know, uh, 13 years old and, uh, Kennedy gets shot on my 13th birthday. Your birthday is November 22nd. Mm hmm And, uh... Okay, well, let's go back to November 22nd. You're 13. I certainly remember that day. Did you have plans to have a celebration or a yeah. party? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, to show you how politically aware I was back then, that's all I was concerned with. It was like, you know, is the party going to happen or not? <laughs> you know? <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, but uh, soon, just after that, right, just four months later, you know, the Big Bang occurred. Okay, wait, 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 let's not get there for a second. Oh, all right. A, good student, mediocre student, bad student. Uh, I was a good student. Very good. Ever thought of, you know, going through college? Would your parents say, did you miss, you know, what, what are your thoughts there? It was, a, it was a thought. My parents wanted me very much to go to college. Um, I had a couple of advanced classes, in fact, heading that way, like uh, calculus, believe it or Whoa, not. Impressive. And, and, and physics, and, and there's certain uh, kinds of physics classes and a couple, couple different things, yeah. Um, and... So at that point, you know, you're, you're trying to find uh, the normal uh, route into society. Uh, I, I thought it was going to be college. Yeah. Okay. But let's go back to the earlier days. Beatles are in 64. Did you have a transistor? Were you a sports kid listening to the sports? Um, not big on sports. No. But you had a transistor. Uh, you remember getting a transistor radio? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That's how I heard the Beatles. Okay. Heard, you know, were, you listening, were you listening to, you know, this is all New York radio, WMCA, WABC, 1010 right. Wins. Were you listening to those before the Beatles? Oh, yeah. We had great radio uh, all along, all along. Uh, in the 50s into the early 60s, uh, the radio was, was terrific. We were much luckier than our, than our British uh, brothers and sisters who uh, literally had nothing until, until, until the pirates, you know, until. Uh, okay, until but, you, when you, but you were listening. You were an active music listener before the Beatles. Uh, yeah, I bought, I bought a couple dozen singles. You know? Do you remember what some of those were? Oh, yeah, yeah. First was uh, Tears on My Pillow, Little Anthony and the Imperials. Um, uh, uh, poison Ivy was given to me by my aunt because I had Poison Ivy. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, I bought, uh, you know, uh, uh, Sherry, uh, Biff Four Seasons were huge, uh, Twist and Shout by the Isley Brothers, uh, Palisades Park, uh, Little Pre Little Angel Eyes, uh, Duke of Earl, you know, uh, you can't sit down, uh, uh, you know, uh, those, those were, those were just, uh, really, really great, great singles. Uh, Will You Still Love Me Tomorrow, the Shirelles. Um, How about the Beach Boys and any West Coast stuff? You know, I, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't really like the Beach Boys or the West Coast stuff. No, no, I didn't, I didn't get that whole thing. There was something, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, I don't know what it was. The college, even though I, I thought of going to college, but the whole fraternity vibe of them with the letters on the sweater and it was something that was just a turnoff to me at that at that stage, you know. Um, I mean, that's why the Beatles was so shocking. It was, it was, it was, it was shockingly contemporary, you know? I mean, uh, and, and even the Four Seasons, which is the other group that survived the Beatles, and they're the only two that did, right. the way, you know, is the Beach Boys and the Four Seasons, and of course, the Motown and, and Soul stuff. But, but the Four Seasons, you know, again, you know, they look like your Italian uncles. I mean, you, you know, <laughs> you, 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 you love them. You love the records. I mean, the greatest records, among the greatest records ever made. I mean, you know, one one phenomenal thing after the other. Uh, you know, Sherry, Big Girls Don't Cry, Walk Like a Man, Big Man in Town, Ronnie. Uh, Ragdoll. Ragdoll. Forget it. You know, Marlena, uh, Candy Girl. I mean, you know, phenomenal stuff. Phenomenal stuff. But, you know, you didn't really, you know, you didn't want to, I didn't want to be them, you know, whatever, for whatever reason, uh, you know, and, and, um, and it was, it was the British invasion that just, uh, okay. completely, you know. So when did you personally first hear the Beatles? I was in bed under the covers with my transistor radio. And, uh, I remember my brother would listen also. He was in the next bed. We were both in the same room. And older or younger? Younger. He's seven years younger. Because, uh, uh, you know, my mother remarried when I was seven. And, uh, and that's how I got it. That's how an Italian kid gets a Dutch name. And so I had a, I had a brother and sister that came along at that point. But uh, I remember, uh, like it was yesterday, uh, the... Uh, you know, you're digging whatever's on the radio, and, and that's all great. I Want to Hold Your Hand comes on, and they hit that high note, and me and my brother burst out laughing, just uh, spontaneously, you know. And I, and I, you know, and I've been analyzing that ever since, you know, which it comes down to the Beatles had just hit on something remarkable that, um, obviously came from the fifties came from all the, the doo-wop and certainly Everly brothers and, and everybody else and Roy Orbison and, and, and all, all of them. But, but, but they, they, they had taken it to some new level and communicated just unbridled joy. Somehow there was some, something joyous in, in, in that, in, in their music that was, uh, new. It was just new and unexplainable, really. Uh, and man, it was just like, uh, just a, uh, you know, just a volcano, uh, you know, you know, 
the culture was just transformed o- overnight, completely. Okay, so the record, I want to hold your hand. Forget the stuff on VJ before, because we didn't right. know about it then. No, no. So I want to hold your hand. It's actually released at the end of December, but literally after the first of the year, it's gigantic. Beatles are not on till February. Did you buy the single? And then there was She Loves You with I'll Get You on the end. There was Meet the Beatles. How active were you before they were on Ed Sullivan? Yeah, no, no. Uh, uh, very. Uh, uh, that, was the first, that was the first album I ever bought. Uh, which we thought was the first. We thought was their first album. Of course, it turns out to be their second. Right. Um, but but um, that was my album buying. You know, that was the beginning of album buying for me. Uh, and then and then yeah, whatever you could find at that point. They they you know the VJ the Swan something was on Swan. Right. So, you know. Uh, <laughs> and then uh, actually, their first album kind of snuck out there on, on, on some uh, maybe on vj also on vj right introducing yeah. the beatles yeah 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 uh we couldn't get enough we couldn't we could not get enough of, i mean there's never been a, a sonic takeover like like that like that i mean as everybody knows and i'm sure you know by april they had the top five singles uh and another 15 or 20 on the charts the same time you know but the top five singles uh yeah nobody wanted to hear anything else <laughs> i mean uh, uh but you know but soon there would be other british invaders <laughs> that would uh do quite well david clark five uh were right on their heels and and and, and glad all over would, would uh replace uh uh one of one of them one, one of the beatles <laughs> songs and then you know it's just one, one after the other herman's hermits the animals and and then you know stones yard birds uh, okay so i certainly remember this era before the beatles was a folk era every household had a nylon string guitar people <laughs> would play a few chords the beatles hit overnight people are growing their hair and getting guitars what was going on with you no 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 there's no you're not exaggerating i mean, I mean literally February 8th, nobody had a band. You didn't see bands. You know, you didn't, the four or five guys singing and playing didn't exist. You know, uh, you went to your high school dance. It was an instrumental band. Uh, all right, so February 9th, they played this variety show that the whole family watched on Sunday nights. February 10th, everybody had a band in the garage. And I am telling you, everybody. You know, it, it, it changed the culture overnight. And it would continue uh, really throughout the entire 60s. When you went out at night and had to have fun, I mean, you might go to driving, okay, to see a movie. Other than that, you went out to see a band. Or in my case, you would actually be playing in a band. But bands took over the culture after that uh, in a really, you know, fun, positive way. That was all you did. I mean, there was no, I mean, to remind your younger, younger listeners, uh, there was no internet or cell phones or video games or, you know, there wasn't a lot of distractions. We did have a good six, seven, eight fantastic rock and roll TV shows on in those days for about a year and a half, which I think looking back was quite remarkable. But mostly, you know, it, it, it was radio and, and going out and seeing bands. And so um, the the 
you know, you, we were just so lucky to be that generation because that meant there were lots of places to play. And I mean, right through high school, we were booked all the time. Uh, and, uh, okay, you know, but how did you, did you have play any instrument prior to the Beatles? How did you pick up the guitar and how did you form a band? No, my first two bands, I was, I was the lead singer. So I didn't learn how to play guitar for about a year or two, but I started early just before the Beatles hit my grandfather from uh, my Italian grandfather from, from, you know, uh, my mother's father, uh, who was from Calabria, um, showed me the, the, the song of his village, a uh, little melody that was just, uh, I guess every, every town had their little theme song, I guess. Uh, so he, he was showing me that. And I, just, and I, I wasn't, you know, crazy about playing guitar uh, as much as, as I wanted to spend time with my grandfather, to tell you the truth. You know what I mean? It was that kind of thing. Um, but I got like a, I don't know, six-month head start before everybody else bought guitars. <laughs> and then um, 64, you know, right into 65, I, I didn't really um, start uh, for my, uh, my, my, my main band, The Source. Uh, started in 66, at which point I'm playing lead guitar. So it took me, uh, it took me a couple of years, I guess, to get there. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com stereo right now. NetSuite.com stereo. NetSuite.com stereo. 
The following ad is sponsored by Pets Best Insurance Services. Pets come into our lives in many ways. Shelters, breeders, or unexpected encounters. But no matter how you found your pet, they become our perfect match. Unfortunately, finding the right pet insurance plan can be hard. That's where Pets Best comes in. With a little information about you and your pet, Pets Best will recommend a plan that meets your needs and budget. Visit PetsBest.com to learn more today. Your perfect pet deserves the perfect coverage. PetsBest.com. Okay, a lot of people from that era, and you've certainly met all of them, I've certainly met some of them, they're not really that talkative, their personality isn't so much, but they get on stage, they light up, the music speaks through them, and their whole life opens up, the girls all want them. So you're now the lead singer of a band, then the lead guitarist of a band. How does your life change? You know, what was really uh, funny, ironic, I don't know, you know, we're watching Hard Day's Night, you know, which is just the, uh, you know, primer, primer, however you say that, for how to be in a rock and roll band, <laughs> you know, you, you hope. Um, and um, the, the girls did not like us who were in a band. Uh, it, it was, uh, first of all, the whole rock star concept at that point was English. You know, you, 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 if you weren't English, you were kind of irrelevant. Uh, and, and, um, in our, in our area, in our school, the girls still liked the football players, you know, and, and, uh, um, uh, you were just kind of freaky, to be honest. It wasn't, it wasn't like you were cool to be in a band in the sixties. It, it, it was more a freak, a, a freakiness about you. Uh, because it, was, it wasn't a business till the 70s, first of all. And before that, like I say, it was just kind of a British thing. They just kind of owned it. So you were just, I don't know, some kind of wannabe, I guess, or something, but not considered cool or something that girls desired, certainly, <laughs> you know. Uh, you know, so your life doesn't really change other than my life taking on uh, a bit of a purpose, which, which was a big, you know, a big thing for a kid, man. You're, you know, you're looking, you're looking, uh, you're wondering, you know, where, where are you going in this world, man? And I'm telling you right now, I was having a lot of problems trying to fit in or trying to think of where I fit in before the Beatles hit. And then, uh, I, and I always tie it together. And, and then four months later, the Rolling Stones came. Uh, so it's always been a 50, 50 thing for me. Um, you know, because the Beatles were just, you know, that yes, they revealed a new world, but they were just way too good to think that you could do it. You know, and they just were, we caught them halfway through the career. You know, they're singing together since 57. They've gone in 69. You know, here we are in 64. They're, they're, they're phenomenal. Okay. They're, you know, harmony is ridiculously perfect. The hair's perfect. The clothes, everything's perfect. And four months later, here comes the Rolling Stones. A little more casual, a lot more casual. Uh, the hair is not perfect, except for Brian Jones. Uh, no harmony whatsoever. You know, uh, they made it look easier than it was. They really were the first punk band in every sense of the word. But they made they made it made, they made it look easier than it was. And uh, so I, you know, I always say the, the Beatles revealed this new world, and the Rolling Stones invited us in. Okay, now the music changed. First, it's the British Invasion. 
Then, and these are not strict demarcations, but I'll throw them out there anyway. You have the folk rock of the birds. Then you have the 67 coming in with Jefferson Airplane, etc. Did you like all kinds of music? Because you remember this was on Saturday night on WABC. They'd have wars between the Beatles and the Stones. <laughs> so, you know, so were you a fan of everything or was there certain stuff? No, I like this and I don't like that. Well, you, you had some of that going on, but, but we were surprisingly a, a, a monoculture at that point. I mean, you know, not strictly, but, but, but very much so in, in, in a country that, you know, uh, was the only country ever created that was not a monoculture. Uh, you know, we were a culture of ideas. Uh, many of which we're still trying to implement. Um, but we, but musically, we were very much a monoculture. And, and like you say, um, the trends went year by year in those days and pretty much followed by everybody, you know, which was a great education because, you know, you pick up a little bit of this, you pick up a little bit of that. Some people stayed in that, in that certain mode. I mean, 64 British Invasion, 65 folk rock, 66 blues rock. 67 psychedelic, 68 country rock, and then 69 the southern the southern white gospel blues thing, you know, with Delaney and Bonnie and, and all the rest. Uh, and you kind of went from trend to trend, and everybody did um, right up until the 70s. At which point it, it did fragment and and, uh, and become hybrids after that. Um, but but I you, you kind of tend you, you tended to like everything. I mean. There'd be moments where, yeah, you know, you might have a Beatles versus Stones discussion or, um, you know, a Jeff Beck group versus Led Zeppelin discussion, you know, later on. Uh, but you tended to kind of like everything. I mean, those, those who's better than who were kind of phony arguments to begin with. Okay, you bring up a couple of things. Who's the best guitarist ever, according to you? <laughs> Well, we got you, you, there's two uh, there's sort of two eras of guitar. Uh, there's the '60s era, which uh, there's no doubt about. I don't think anybody would disagree that Jimi Hendrix was the greatest guitar player that ever lived. Um, uh, the, the '60s guy that ended up uh, still blowing minds is Jeff Beck. Now you go see Jeff Beck right now, and he will blow your mind right now. Oh yeah. Uh, you know, and, and, and Eric Clapton will say the same thing, and Jimmy Page will say the same thing. Last time I saw uh, Jeff Beck, Jimmy Page was standing next to me, and it, just as awestruck as I was, you know. But they all pay homage to Jimi Hendrix. He just was from another planet. You know, and then, then there's a whole second era of, of modern guitar styles coming from the Eddie Van Halen, you know, hammering. Uh, it's a whole different, a whole different style, which... I never got into, uh, but there's a whole, there's dozens of modern, so-called the modern era guitar players that are, you know, Steve Vai and those guys that are remarkable uh, technically, just, just beyond belief technically. Uh, but that's a whole different style that I never, I never got into. So I, I, it was, for me, it was just the four, Mount Rushmore pretty much was, 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 was Clapton, uh, Beck, Page and Hendrix. And, and, a, and, a, and a very special place in my heart for Mike Bloomfield, uh, who, who was important to, to me. You know, um, Paul Butterfield's a guitar player and, and later formed the Electric Flag. Um, but he, um, uh, but uh, you know, th those are the guys, you know, for, for me. 
Okay. Favorite Beatles album, favorite Stones album? Uh, you know, that changes every day. Um, no, no doubt about it. The most important Beatles album, obviously, was Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, which uh, I don't care how much revisionism there goes on. Uh, yes, Revolver well, it was more innovative. Revolver has better songs, song by song. Yes, we, we all agree with that. But Sgt. Pepper was the most important cultural moment. Uh, that I can remember. Uh, every every store you walk down the street, uh, that wherever it was, June first, sixty seven. Every single store was playing it. Uh, you know, every, every every restaurant, every clothing store. Every, you know, it was just an amazing, amazing moment when all of Western culture was celebrating the same the same piece of work. Um, favorite, you know, my favorite Beatles album probably. Uh, it, it probably helped. Um, um, I, that's my favorite seven seven Beatles songs in a row. <laughs> uh, uh, but Hard Day's Night was terrific. Uh, Beatles for Sale, terrific. You know, they, I, I like the I like the early stuff. You know, I liked it from uh, uh, pretty much uh, those. You know, from Hard Day's Night, Beatles for Sale helped. I, I love that period the most. Uh, Stones. Uh, uh, for me, uh, 12 by 5. Um, uh, two of my favorite Stones albums don't exist <laughs> in England, which right. is 12, 12 by 5 and uh, December's Children. Um, that's why you know we, we, we use the American Stones albums as the real thing, and of course the, the, the British Beatles albums as, as the real configurations, you know. Um, but, you know, the, rec the record company actually did the, <laughs> did the right thing with Stones. Uh, 12 by 5 for me, uh, you know, and then, then you have the second Stones era. The, the, the second great Stones era, of course, is the four remarkable, you know, Beggar's Banquet, Let It Bleed, Sticky Fingers, uh, Exile, you know. Uh, you know, the, the two eras are, are both amazing to me. Uh, but, I, but I actually, I, I enjoy the, the, the early stuff. I, I, love, I love the covers. I love the covers, you know, Beatles and Stones. You know, I think that's a real true measurement of greatness, and and usually it's the it's the guys who went on, go on to write the best songs, uh, just do the best cover versions. And uh, I have a great respect for cover versions, and, and I think it's a, an extremely important part of rock education that many many people are skipping these days. I think two best covers. Oh, by those two bands? No, no, two best covers. Period. Oh, geez, there's a, that's a whole, I did a whole radio show on that. Um, well, there's, you know, I, 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 in, in the book, I talk about the, the, the various rules for how to make a cover song your own. And the one, the one that, the one that checked all the boxes, uh, is, is the vanilla fudge, uh, you keep me hanging on. Uh, but, um, certainly close to that is, you know, Jimi Hendrix, uh, all along the watchtower, you know, one of the greatest and, Joe Cocker's little help for my friends. Um, those three, I think, probably stand out uh, as three of the three of the greatest. Let's go a little decade later. Soft Cell redoes "Tainted Love" and matches it with "Where Did Our Love Go?" And I did not know the original "Tainted Love." Did you? And what do you think of those two songs put together by Soft Cell? No, I didn't. I didn't know it either. Um, um, I wasn't really into them. That whole, uh, you know, whatever that was called, the new new, new wave. wave, yeah, new wave. I wasn't a big new waver. 
so I didn't like that whole synthesizer uh, MTV thing, you know. Um, there might be an exception or two to the rule, but they, they weren't it. Okay. So one thing you say in the book, which blows my mind because I use it all the time, is we live through the Renaissance. Okay, and I tell people today, when people say, oh, music today is just as good as it ever was, they said, no. <laughs> we lived through the Renaissance. They had a Renaissance in painting and sculpture in England. They've been painting and sculpting since, but there was only one Renaissance. Okay. I'm with you. But in your book, I get the impression, well, let me just ask you straight. The Renaissance starts with the Beatles. When does it end? It's a good question. Um and arguably, uh, you could you could clock it. I mean, the full Naissance and Renaissance was a you know about twenty years, you know fifty one to about seventy one. Uh, but you you can go into the mid seventies if you you know. And I wouldn't argue too much about that, especially if you're including other arts. You know, if you're including movies um, and other you know other 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 you know other important books, film uh, paintings, you know. You may want to go into the seventies. The high, the high point uh, would be this sixty-four to to seventy-one, seventy-two. From you know the Beatles uh, to um, e either uh, Exile on Main Street or 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 or, uh, or the Who. Uh, what's it called? Who's next? With the well, who's next is in seventy-one. Quadrophenia in seventy-three. Yeah, see, you, you'd want to, you'd want to include that. So you know. Somewhere in there, somewhere in there, you know, um, different than the rock era, which I clocked from like a Rolling Stone to Kurt Cobain's death, almost exactly 30 years. But the Renaissance for, for, for me uh, was, was that, yeah, 60s into the, into the 70s. Okay. Conventional wisdom is rock is dead. What do you think about that? Well, I think that's true in the industry uh, sense uh, of the word. Uh, however, uh, we're still the biggest thing live, and I think that that will continue to be true. Uh, it's a very important part of of the of the rock art form uh, is is live performance. It's uh, unlike any other art form in that sense, I, I think, and we still remain, I think, the biggest thing live, and always will, at least while while our generation is still going. Uh, we're not being replaced, unfortunately, but I'm trying to make up for that with my radio format and my music education program and, and, uh, my record company and everything else I've been doing for the last 25 years. I've been trying to, trying to preserve this endangered species called rock. Um, but, uh, it's, it's, it, it's, it's not part of the industry anymore. I mean, they don't, you know, and I, I, I really pissed off that they don't even bother to, broadcast it on the grammys anymore it's 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 really really uh enraging you know when we ran the world you know when rock ran the world we included everybody you know we we didn't kick them off the telecast and say by the way the rock awards went to so-and-so you know i mean you know it's it's it's, it's that's really wrong but uh but anyway that's just an example of how how dead it is it, they don't even bother showing them on the Grammys anymore. Um, and, you know, the last time with a rock and roll song got in the, in the top 40, I, I don't even remember. You know, there's no more hit singles that are 
that are rock. Okay, rock. Let, let's talk about rock because there is rock and there's the active rock format. I have a theory about this. I remember when Led Zeppelin was considered heavy metal and Black Sabbath was too far out. Now, after Black, forget the number of years, but in terms of sound, from Black Sabbath, you go to Metallica. And then from Metallica, you could go even further off, such that if you want to listen to what they call active rock, you have to have an education encyclopedia to get that far because it's not really ear-appealing from the beginning. Whereas we grew up in an era, of course, the Beatles are definitive. They all had good voices. They wrote songs with melodies. They had choruses, their bridges. Is this just a lost art like the Mayans? Couldn't we just put that together and have hit songs again? <laughs> I think truthfully, I think all that went to Nashville. You know, it kind of, it still exists there, right? I mean, uh, you know, uh, I got a, I got a second format on Sirius Satellite called Outlaw Country. And um, that resembles the old rock world more than the modern rock world <laughs> resembles the old rock world. I think, you know, I, I think all that went to, Went to country music, uh, you know, so I'm glad it exists somewhere. But um, other than that, yeah, it's a it's a very different uh, it's a very different pop world now. And uh, and uh, I'm not sure there is a rock world, really. You know, but yeah, there's a, the heavy, a hard, the hard stuff. Yeah, the hard stuff still exists, but they they've gotten that's become almost uh, an intellectual part of the art form, uh, you know, in a funny way. Uh, my friend, uh, my friend Max Weinberg's uh, son uh, Jay it, it was in one of those bands, and and and, uh, and an early and one of his early heavy metal bands. I went to see them, and 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 it was extraordinarily complex. I mean, it was it was like bebop uh, times on steroids. Uh, I, I mean, very complex musically. A, a, a very high level of of, of, uh, of uh, technical proficiency. Uh, they go all over the place and they all stop together. And I was like, "How did they possibly stop together in that moment?" You know, so you, I can't, I couldn't, I couldn't uh, understand it. I couldn't un analyze it. It was so complicated, you know. Uh, so it's become almost uh, an intellectual, uh, you know, in a funny way, an intellectual pursuit. You know, it appeals to an intellect as much as the venting of frustration, which is how we mostly associate with, with, you know, with hard rock. There's some, there's a whole nother level of technical, uh, uh, you know, expertise going on with that, with that world. Um, but I don't, you know, I don't, of course I don't relate to it directly, but, um, you know, there's room for everybody and, and, you know, God bless. But, but, uh, you know, but as far as the, the stuff that we grew up with, you know, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta listen to my radio station if you want to hear that. <laughs> okay, was it in your book where you poo pooed Americana? Um, no. Um, they start. I think that that format started um, trying to copy an idea I had. I, I, I didn't really, I didn't put it down. It's, it's, it's fine. But I, I, I was discussing um, what became Outlaw Country with somebody in Nashville who had a discussion with the guy who started Americana. 
And it, it was very either extraordinarily coincidental uh, or I think it came from that discussion. And he didn't do exactly my format. He didn't do this. He didn't do the format exactly as I described it, but it was close. And uh, so I didn't, I don't think I uh, put it down. But, you know, it, it, it's okay. You fine. know, I read so much. I, as I said, I wasn't absolutely sure. Okay. Uh, one of the times I saw Tom Petty before he died, he played a week at uh, the Fonda and he played, I went a couple of nights, they played different songs and he played an old country song and he called country music today rock of the 70s. Okay. Now, on one hand, we have those people. Another hand, the most respected artist in Nashville is Chris Stapleton, who is great on Eddie front. So do you pay attention to that scene? Do you have thoughts about that scene? Yeah, they, you know, I don't, I don't pay as much attention as I should because it is, it is one of my formats, but we, we champion the new artists uh, just like we do on, in, on the rock side. And so I, I think there was a very, very healthy scene there. And, and, uh, and I agree. And I, like I, we talked about this a minute ago. I think, I think most of what you were describing as, as melodic, interesting uh, chord changes and, and melodies and, and, and artists expressing themselves now lives in, in country music and in Nashville, you know, the, uh, you know, Stapleton or during the Jason Isbells and wh whoever else, you know, the, uh, they, they, you know, and, and I, I think that's, that, that's a healthy thing. You know, I, I, we, you know, our, the outlaw country format is all three generations of Hank Williams, you know, cause, uh, you know, once, once, uh, uh, a friend of mine told me that they, they weren't playing Johnny Cash on, on country radio anymore. I'm like, well, then it's time for a new format. I'm sorry. You know, and that, that's one of the reasons why I started it, uh, to make sure. Were you aware of country music in that period? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, not again, not living it, but, uh, uh, aware of it, you know? And, uh, and I just, I liked a lot of that generation, you know, I, I like Merle Haggard, you know, <laughs> in spite of his, you know, you're right. Politics, I, yeah, and, and me being a hippie, you know, you're right, exactly. Uh, I love Johnny Cash, and and uh, and, you know, and and all back, all back to Hank Williams, and and uh, and uh, you know, the outlaws, you know, Chris Christopherson and Waylon and Waylon Jennings, you know, uh, I like that generation a, a lot. They they just uh, there was just something cool about them. Okay, so Crosby, Stills, and Nash comes out in 69. We have the Eagles in 72. We have Sweetheart of the Rodeo in 68. Was that a sound that appealed to you or not? Oh, yeah, definitely. We, well, like I said, we, we, were, we were following the trends in those days. And I think, and I say we, I think that's true about everybody. We were all following those trends. And uh, country rock um, was big, man. I was, I was you know, I'm still a huge fan of you know, the Young Bloods, uh, Buffalo Springfield, uh, uh, Birds, Flying Burrito Brothers, uh, Moby Grape. You know, these were country. This is country music for us, you know, country rock. And uh, yeah, I, I was a big, big fan of it, yes. Okay, so let's talk about turn of the Z uh, decade, 60s and 70s. You're out of high school, you're playing. What do I know? Like everybody else, I had a guitar I had played. I went to my friend Mark's house. We're playing our guitars. He goes, now we're going to change keys. And I said, I'm out. 
You know, <laughs> did you ever, has it always been hard work for you or did you ever fall on the side and say, wait a second, this is my groove. I can do this. I live here. I'm as good as anybody. Um, I think, you know, you're always, you're always kind of improving. Uh, you know, I don't know if I ever, uh, I mean, once you start writing your own shows, you know, your, your own records and your own shows, obviously you're, it's gotta be, it's a, it's a comfort zone cause you've created it, you know? Um, but other than, other than that, you're always, you're always, I don't know, learning, looking to improve. Right. Does anybody intimidate you a musician just in terms of how good they are? Um, oh man, there's a, there's a whole, you know, Ravi Shankar. Yeah. You know, uh, you know, I, I mean, it's glorious. It's just a glorious thing to witness uh, a great uh, greatness in any form. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm attracted to greatness in any form. I agree with you. It's like when you have a great sport guy, great guy on uh, any the dominance and to see them walk that line, Lewis Hamilton and car racing, the guy on Jeopardy. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash stereo right now. NetSuite.com slash stereo. NetSuite.com slash stereo. The following ad is sponsored by Pets Best Insurance Services. Pets come into our lives in many ways. Shelters, breeders, or unexpected encounters. But no matter how you found your pet, they become our perfect match. Unfortunately, finding the right pet insurance plan can be hard. That's where Pets Best comes in. With a little information about you and your pet, Pets Best will recommend a plan that meets your needs and budget. Visit PetsBest.com to learn more today. Your perfect pet deserves the perfect coverage. PetsBest.com 
So one of the big points in the book, and you really describe it well the whole period, that Bruce gets a record deal and he says, you know, he gets it with John Hammond and they think it's a folk record. I remember for a long time, the second album was my favorite for second Bruce, Wild the Innocent. Okay. Mm. Especially this, I saw him at the bottom line the year before in 73, I mean, 74, the year before uh, the Born to Run shows. But you say a couple of things. You say he was sold, sold to John Hammond as a folk act. And certainly on that record, the band is mixed way down. But I realize the book is about you, but A, were you very conscious of Bruce trying to get a deal, record deal into the Stravails? And tell me exactly how you felt when you were left out in the re- initial recording situation. Um, I, I wasn't... Uh I wasn't following it day day to day, but but we were very very conscious of trying to get a record deal. That's where you, that's you know that was the whole idea get get into the business. Um, and and we were you know we had a different band every three months. Uh, you, you know in in that late sixties, and at some point we realized no matter what we did, nobody's coming down from New York to discover us in Asbury Park. I mean, even though it's only an hour and hour and a half away. Might as well be been on the moon. So Bruce, being you know smart, saw the singer songwriter trend coming. Uh, it was happening at that moment, uh, which was the beginning of the fragmentation. At that point, you know, like I said, uh, it was it went from singer songwriter on the left to heavy metal on the right, and everything in between. Um, uh, singer songwriters. Interestingly enough, when I, I analyzed it, you know, I realized the difference between them and folk singers, <laughs> yeah, um, which is pretty much semantics. But 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 uh, the interesting thing, additionally, was all the singer songwriters had hits, you know, which was not the case with all the folk singers, right. you know, uh, you know, uh, and, and I, it, it struck me when I realized that. But anyway, Bruce kind of gets in the Trojan horse of singer-songwriters and then immediately, you know, pisses everybody off by saying, I don't want to make an acoustic record. You know, I, I, want, I want to do a band record. And uh, John Hammond was not happy about that. His managers were not happy about that. Uh, nobody. And uh, so um, we didn't have an existing band exactly at that moment. So he just kind of started drawing in guys from different bands and we'd played with and of course i was one of them and um i turned out to be just you know one guitar player too many i mean they they weren't happy about having the band at all and they certainly didn't see any need for a second guitar so i was uh rejected and and um and uh i guess it hit me pretty hard uh, uh, i was you know Pretty disappointed about it. Uh, and I kind of, at that point, I felt we had missed the boat anyway. I really did. I felt like the great stuff has all been done. You know, it's 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 just kind of over. And I wasn't that far wrong, by the way. But, uh, you know, it just kind of felt like, you know, it's redundant from now on. And uh, so I wasn't, I, I wasn't, you know, too, too depressed about it. But... It was it was it was depressing and, and disappointing, and I quit. I quit the business at that point, and worked construction for two years. Okay, to what degree are those two things connected? 
Was the fact that you weren't included in the band, was that really what drove you to go to construction? Yeah, because I was in debt uh, from a previous couple of bands uh, We when, when we thought we were going to be big, and I bought a big amp <laughs> and a van to, to carry it around in, you know, because I thought we were going to, that was our big break, you know, a couple of bands earlier. So I was in debt. I had to pay, you know, I had to get a straight job for the first time in my life. How much did you hate it? Well, I, I, I hated it. Um, but I, but I started, uh, my mind immediately began to adjust to, uh, accepting this as, you know, this is it, man. This is, this is your life now. So adjust to it. And, um, I was pretty good at doing that, I guess. Um, but, uh, after two seasons going from, you know, uh, Flagman on 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 Route 287 at six in the morning in you know five degree weather go all the way to the jackhammer in a hot 90 degree summer um i was playing football on the weekends and and uh, uh, flag football and i broke my finger still bent and uh and um to exercise my finger i, I couldn't work anymore couldn't pick up a jackhammer, so uh, I went to exercise my finger by joining a band playing piano, uh, and that's how I got back into music just by just by that weird circumstance, which is a story of my life. I mean, weird circumstance is definitely the story of my life, as you see in the book. And I, and I got back into it, so I, I you know, I, I, I appreciated show business a lot more after working instruction than I did before. Let's put it that way. Okay, in the book, you ultimately go to Vegas, you go to Miami, you're working with oldie Zacks, and there's a lot of sex talk at this point, you know, and then you talk about going uh, down south, uh, below the Mason-Dixon line, and having girls, whatever. Were these things that the older musicians taught you, being on the road, or how did this develop? Well, it was just, I wanted to give a little bit of flavor of that, of that era. You know, and the seventies, uh, was just, uh, wide open. I mean, uh, you know, this is before AIDS and, uh, and, and, and post women's liberation. I mean, this was real women's liberation. Like they would come and ask you for sex liberation. And, uh, I want to give people a little bit of the flavor of that. I don't think I, I don't think I overdid it. You think I overdid it? Not so. whatsoever, no. No. but <laughs> you were realistic and nobody is ever realistic. On one hand, we have the heavy metal bands where, you know, it's happening 24 <laughs> seven, you know, then we have Linda Ronstadt's book. That's so sanitized. It's like, it's unreadable. Okay. <laughs> so I was surprised that you were honest about it. And, you know, that was why it's good. I mean, there are certain people who are, uh, you know, Elvis, iconic looking in their stars, whatever, and one knows that it goes with the territory there. I mean, I know, listen, I know these people don't know. You go on the road with these people, there's always somebody much more experienced than you are who teaches you the ways of the road yeah, and what yeah. goes on and kind of coaches you along. And then you ultimately pass these lessons down to another level. But if you're not a member of that group, you have <laughs> no idea. 
<laughs> yeah, so the, <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. And, and, and you know, so you got some of that on on the old circuit. Uh, these are the these are the guys who invented it. Okay, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> they didn't just invent rock and roll, <laughs> uh, and that was and that was just fun, man. I I gotta tell you the truth. You know, I was the only one having fun there because they all hated being called oldies. They put out the pasture in the prime of their lives. Okay, these guys are you know late thirties, early forties. If they had four hits when the Beatles hit. They did those four hits the rest of their life, you know, and it was just tragic. Uh, one of the just odd, odd phenomena of our of the history of rock and roll, that first generation who invented it uh, got put out to pasture and, and 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 did not have a chance to evolve uh, with an audience the way every other generation did, starting with the second generation of British invasion, you know. Who are the biggest acts in 64? The Beatles and Stones. Who are the biggest acts now? The Beatles and Stones. You know, uh, as they should be. Uh, because uh, as they evolved, uh, the audience evolved with them. Uh, some reason, that first generation just kind of got left out. And, uh, and that's why one of the reasons why the minute I got in the studio, I started bringing them back, you know, out of just out of gratitude and, and, and wanting to show people that they're still great. Got Ronnie Spector and Lee Dorsey out of retirement. Second Jukes album, we reunited the Coasters, Drifters, and Five Satins. You know, um, uh, me and Bruce got Gary U.S. Bonds, put Benny King and Chuck Jackson on that record. And, uh, and of course, I worked with Ronnie Spector and just did a Darlene Love album, you know, a few, some years, a few years ago. Um, you know, first of all, it's great to work with those people. They're different. They're a different species of people. These were talented people, real talent, you know, not tuning the vocal talent, not editing or the, the, the vocal together talent. They had it right. They got it right the first time every time, you know, they're the real thing. And so they were a joy to produce. But um, anyway, I was the only one. I was really having a good time on, on that, on the, on the meeting, meeting all of those guys. And uh, it's a shame the way that worked out. Okay, so you ultimately come back to Asbury Park. You form the Jukes. First question, tell me how you played Monopoly during the set. <laughs> well, that was, that was a different band. That's Dr. Zoom and the Sonic Boom. At a certain point, like I said, we had a different band every three months. This is before the Jukes. This is quite a bit before the Jukes. Um, this is more more like the early 70s. Uh, we became the uh, go-to opening act at our local hullabaloo club, uh, uh, hullabaloo uh, coming from the TV show. Um, and we didn't really have a band at that time. Uh, and we, you know, we just kind of floundering around. So we decided to put everybody in town in the band. So we, they get a paycheck of some kind. And that include people who didn't play instruments. So we had them play <laughs> monopoly. <laughs> we had, we had them play monopoly instead. And uh, you know, they got their whatever ten bucks or whatever, whatever, we, whatever it was. Yeah. Okay. How come when the pop gives you a deal for the Jukes, and how come you just don't stay with the Jukes? You tell the story of the book how you tell Johnny he's got to be the front man. Why don't you say this is my thing? Let me ride this all the way. 
Yeah, it's a it's a it's a good question. It's a good question. Um, I don't know. I I felt it was limited in some ways. You know, Johnny was great in his own way, and had surprised everybody uh, by being as great as he was. Uh, it, you know, he just really, really rose to the occasion. You know, but he wasn't Rod Stewart. You know, let's face it. He, he wasn't, you know, Stevie Tyler or, or uh, you know, Roger Daltrey. Uh, or, you know, he he wasn't, he, he was like a blues, you know, a blues guy. And great in that particular subgenre. Um, but, but that there's built in limitations to that. And I, and I wasn't ready to be limited. I wanted to go all the way, you know? And so the horse I bet on was, was Bruce Springsteen. Cause I felt he was the one guy, the local, the one local guy that could go all the way. And I just, um, I felt that about, you know, we were friends a long time and, and uh, and I was probably the first one to, to think that about him cause he was extremely shy and uh and um nobody uh, predicted him uh, to be a success uh, but i saw something special in him very early that nobody else particularly saw um, um but by that point of course it had come uh, kind of a roller coaster ride because he he was the first guy signed uh, in our town but his first two records were complete failures. He was about to be the first guy dropped <laughs> in our town. Uh, you know, so uh, it wasn't uh, it wasn't that final a decision. It wasn't like I'm leaving the Jukes and joining the East Street Band for the rest of my life. He only had seven gigs booked. So I thought, you know, go to seven gigs and probably come back to the Jukes and then let's see what we can do, you know. Uh, may have recorded the first album by then, but that's about it. So I would really start to uh, uh, become a much better songwriter on their second and third albums. Uh, so, so their their future artistically wasn't really clear at that point. Uh, I just was using them to to learn the craft of, of record production because I I really felt like I, I I was a record producer and I wanted to learn how to do it. Uh, you know okay another thing you talk about throughout the book is writing songs how do you write a song well i i think what i tell people now you know and i do these master classes on songwriting i you know i try to say there's first of all there's no rules okay so let's keep that in mind but um i said you know the thing you you, you want to try and overcome is is being stuck you want you want to try and be you want to have some momentum and you want to try and be moving forward with whatever you're doing, all right. You don't want to be sitting there staring at a blank piece of paper if you can help it, you know, waiting for your muse, you know, to to, to visit. Uh, you know, now this may be just me and my ADD, which, as I say, I've had long before it was fashionable. So you know, I don't, I don't have any patience. So 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 um, I tell people, you know, first of all write with purpose you should also live with purpose by the way but but certainly you should write with purpose uh what do you want the song to do you know uh you want to make people cry make them laugh make them dance uh you want to have a hit record 
you want to confess your sins, uh, you know, decide what, what you want the, the song to do, uh, you know. Um, and then, you know, you can work out how, lim how literal you want it to be. Uh, but write, write down some reference lyrics saying exactly what you want to say. Don't worry about being poetic. Don't worry about being cleverly metaphorical at first. Just write it straight out. And then you can go back and, and you can add all those things. You want to disguise it. You want to, you know, make it more poetic, whatever you want to do, make it more artistically interesting. You can do that later. But the idea is to get some momentum going, come up with a purpose, write out what that purpose is as clearly as, 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 as you can, you know. Um, and the other thing I, I use also, and, and I teach it and I, and I use it myself. And I used it very much on my latest album, Summer Sorcery. Uh, if you're stuck writing a song for yourself, write one for somebody else. Um, it's a, it's a, it's the best way uh, to to break that break up that you know that log jam, you know, because uh, uh, it, it's always more difficult to see yourself. Uh, you know, you want to write a write a Beach Boy song. You know, write a song that you, could, you, you, you can see the Beach Boys doing, or write a Rolling Stones song, or, you know, whoever your favorite artist is. Uh, write, a, write a Doors song, you know. You know. Now, when you do that, um, you're not really going to be impersonating them, most likely. Uh, so it's going to come out you. It, it's going to end up being you. Uh, but it was just a, it's just a way of, of getting some momentum going, because that's the hardest thing when it comes to writing. And once in a while, you'll get a great melody will come into your head uh, or a phrase. You'll catch a phrase in a book or somebody saying something. You know, and I, and I, and I keep notes. I mean, the reason why Summer of Sorcery was, was such a miracle was my radar had been down for 30 years. So before that, in the 80s, when you're in that cycle, you know, record, tour, record, tour, record, tour, record, tour, um, you're always, your radar is always up. You're always making little notes, you know, little melodies thing. You know, you, you record little bits of melody that come to you or a chord change, you know, you record it. Uh, words, you know, you'll jot down, you know, somewhere. Uh, phrases, you know, always looking for titles are always important. The most important thing is the title. You know, second most important thing is the chorus. Third most important thing is the opening line. You know, so you're always looking for those. The rest writes itself. Um, and, and you're, you know, uh, and you're always compiling all these notes. And then when you go to make a record, you have all this stuff. You can then, you, you can, you know, put it all together. Uh, I go to make summer sorcery. I have none of that. There's no notes, you know, there's no, not one bit of melody on, recorded anywhere or not one single phrase, you know, that's why it was such a remarkable uh, miracle that record happened. But, um, but I did, I, but I did write down, I, I sat down and said, okay, so I'm going to make a new record. Um, first of all, I want it to be a new idea. I don't, I don't want it to be autobiographical because all my records were autobiographical and I don't want it to be political. All right. Because there's no reason to be political during the Trump years. <laughs> it's, it's completely redundant. So, so, uh, I said, you know, I'm just, just going to write 10 or 12 little fictional movies, be a different guy in each and uh, have some fun. And, and I, and I said, you know, so who, who do I want represented on this record? And I wrote down a list. I want Sly and the Family Stone because that's how I'm picturing my new disciples of soul in that, in that sort of, uh, you know, frame. 
I want some Sam Cooke. I want some Tito Puente. You know, uh, I want some James Brown. And, uh, you know, I made a list. And, there, and, and, then, and then I wrote the songs. And, uh, and, none, and none of those songs sound like those people exactly. They sound like me. And that's how it works, man. You know? Yeah. Uh, how about collaboration? Believe in it or not believe in it? Well, I, you know, I, I, I love the idea of it. Um, but I never figured out how to do it. I, I can, and, and all my collaborations, uh, you know, usually somebody's riff, you know, Bruce, Bruce came up with a riff on a, a love on the wrong side of town, you know, and I wrote the rest, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, uh, give me, give me a piece of a song and then I'll finish it, you know? But two guys in the same room writing, I, I don't, I don't know how to do that. And I, and I envy it. You know, I, I'd like to do that. I, I'd like to be in that, you know, Lennon and McCartney mode when they started, you know, Mick and Keith when they started, um, or any of the, any of the great songwriting teams, you know, Lieber and Stoller, you know, Barry Greenwich, uh, you know. Um, right, a lot of great ones. Okay, let's so ultimately Gary Gersh tracks you down. You make these records for EMI America. Commercially, they are not successful. You talk in the book about the label not taking advantage of television appearance in Europe, based in Germany, etc. What was your internal experience? A, did you feel an obligation to try to have hits for them or you thought you were doing the right thing and the label wasn't coming through for you. What was your experience there? Yeah. Um, I really, uh, I, I like those records and, and I go, I went back and really, really reexamined them right in this book. Um, I really believe it was a case of having no manager uh, to, to be that advocate. And um, my records were not exactly the most commercial and the most uh, the songs that really fit in necessarily. So it would have been difficult, no matter who it was. Um, they were just the way I heard them. I, I you know, my records are completely un uncompromising, um, and I don't know where that comes from. I don't know why. I mean, I grew up with pop music, you know, and I love pop music. I love sixties pop music. Um, but I just, I was off on some artistic trip that I, I just couldn't resist because it felt like I was justifying my existence. You know, it wasn't enough to have pop hits in my mind, even if I could have done that. Um, they needed to be hits with substance. I just, I had that need to, to, to communicate substance. I, I don't know why, but I did. And, and, and the songs, you know, were not uncommercial. Now, you know, when you go back and look at, you know, Out of the Darkness or, or, or Bitter Fruit or, or, or you know, uh, whatever, um, they were not, they were not, you know, they're not jazz, you know, they're, they're not, they're not, you know, something difficult to comprehend. Um, and so, you know, I think it would have needed some, an advocate to, to, to really, uh, to really uh, help promote, promote the stuff at the time. Uh, I think with a manager, I think I would have stayed in Europe at that moment and broken through. We played the 16 countries and, and blew the, blew, blew the house down. Uh, and, um, 
and and you know, like I said, a, a group that was not nearly as good stayed and, and broke through in Europe. So that might have been my breakthrough moment. Who knows? I don't know. Um, I, I don't know. I, I but I think lack of management was a big factor. I think my own uh, lack of uh, lack of of making it a priority was probably a factor. I I, I did not see uh, having a having a hit single at that point uh, being a priority to me. And I should have. I should have. I mean, I made sure Bruce Springsteen had a hit record. I tell you that because we needed it. We needed it on that. But that fifth album, that you know, that was the last chance, man. And we we needed it. And, and uh, well, I made sure. I, you know, I've, just to stop at that point for a second, it was fascinating to get your viewpoint on that. I know there's a big economic component on the other side of the stage, but from the audience, if you had been there before. Everybody came aboard on Born to Run. Certain people came aboard on Born to Run. Darkness was a return. It was a gift to the people who had always been there. And in addition, amongst fans in Los Angeles, you played the Rock. They played the Roxy. There were bootlegs. I own the bootleg, etc. So the fact that you felt on the inside that you needed hungry heart and you needed to put it over the top. My feeling, the vibe in L.A. was Bruce and the East Street Band were part of the firmament. Well, being the part of the firmament, part of the firmament of the Roxy is, is one thing. Well, that was an know? underplay. I mean, that was a radio show. <laughs> or even the Palladium or what, what was the in, intermediate? Uh, I'm pretty sure on the Darkness Tour, Bruce played the Forum. Now, granted, that's L.A. Well, maybe and maybe, but it wasn't. It wasn't full. If we, if we did, <laughs> uh, it wasn't full. Okay, so and, and yes, and that was L.A. You know, you go to Kansas. Right. You know, uh, we were struggling. Believe me, believe me, we were struggling. We were in in some ways less popular. I mean, Born to Run made a lot of noise. That that particular song, people think it was a hit. It wasn't really a hit, but it, but it certainly. It, it was an in, FM hit. Yeah, and it got more airplay than anything on Darkness. Darkness right, didn't get absolutely. Music, you know, so we, we were kind of, you know, in some ways on a on a on a downslide, kind of, um, saved by Frank Barcelona, uh, who kept us going, uh, regardless. And um, it just felt like we need <laughs> we need to get over this hump here, you know. So I think that single came wrong at the right, at the right time. Okay, let's jump forward for you. When did you realize The Sopranos was The Sopranos? Um, about three weeks after it was on, um, uh, suddenly everybody is stopping me on the street. Uh, and they, they don't want to discuss rock and roll anymore. <laughs> <laughs> now, I'd been a, you know, a so-called rock star at that point. 25 years just to show the power of tv three weeks forget those 25 years they're, <laughs> they're, they're gone i'm telling you know and, and i and, and i did not i was not that easily recognized you know I, I looked pretty different in the show you know i think if they, you may see it that way people knew you were in the show yeah you think Oh, I know. There was, you know, that was one of the big stories. Well, I, I mean, agree. I, Not everybody walking down the street in New York City is going to know you're in the East Street Band, going to know who you are anyway. But 
If you were a music fan and you were watching that show, you knew it was you. Well, all right, all right. But I, to my mind, I look pretty damn different. But but anyway, it didn't matter because everybody is stopping me. And I said, man, what, this show, is, is, is we're on to something. Because it, it just wasn't that obviously commercial, okay? I mean, the pilot uh was was downright weird that, you know eccentric. is the pilot I mean, the first episode yes yes i mean uh, a, a, a mob boss has ducks flying to his pool they fly away he has a nervous breakdown is that the makings of a hit show you know and and the, and, and david chase no compromise this is going to be his last show he he didn't care all right he'd been a, he'd been a good tv soldier his whole life since Rockford Files, you know, which is like what early seventies or something, um, and 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 he and he he's ready to go on to movies, and he's just going to break every rule in the book. He just doesn't care anymore. So so uh, so um, he he has no. The lighting is like practically cinema verite. You know, it's practically a documentary. Uh, the camera doesn't move at all. Uh, no seductive camera moves. Uh, I had to talk him into adding like four songs to the pilot because there was there was no music. It was just like it was the most uncompromising and too many characters, you know, no stars. You know, a couple of people might have known me, and a couple of people knew. Uh, well, they knew Lorraine from Goodfellas, but here she is doing the opposite role from Goodfellas, you know, uh, and that's it. Uh, so I mean, every rule was was, was being broken. Uh, and I thought, uh, you know, I thought it was going to take at least one season for people to kind of get used to the idea of it because it was pretty bizarre, you know. Nope, two, three weeks, boom. I mean, it was it was on, and uh, it just kept building from there. How did the Alabama Three song get chosen? <laughs> they, uh, David chose all all the music. Uh, I don't know. I'm not sure who who uh, turned him on to that. I, I never asked him. Uh, but he, he, but he, you know, he he had a guy that did some music supervision for him. But but mostly he liked. That's the thing he liked doing most. He liked doing the music more than anything. Okay, the landscape is littered with hit shows that get worse every season. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So you're doing the show. Now, there was a delay. First, you want a yearly schedule, and then they, you know, for script reads, I'm on the outside, script reads, they delay. To what degree was there pressure, and to what degree did you feel the attention now as the show started to play out? Well, it, it, <laughs> it became, the pressure was on David Chase. Uh, and and uh, after the first season, uh <laughs> He was a little bit stuck because in his mind, it was just a 13 part movie. And, and, and the movie in his head was, you know, mother wants to kill, kill her own son. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, um, and so he he was kind of he wasn't really sure what to do after the first season, uh, but we did a we did a second season right according according to the schedule I think right. you know, and then we we were at the uh, the rap party uh, for the second season, 
And at that point, you know, we're doing really, really well. And, uh, and, and, and everybody's kind of celebrating and, and David Chase just looked completely wasted, you know, just really drained. And I said, Dave, you know, you know, come on, you gotta have some fun here, man. And he's like, I got, I got like, whatever it is, three, four more months of post-production. And then there's like maybe a month off. And then I got to start writing the third season. He says, and I'm, I'm just, I, I'm exhausted. Uh, and I said, you know, I'm thinking to myself, HP, this is HBO, you know? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, before we got there, there was a football show and seven, right. months, you know, I mean, you know, and I said, Dave, you know, who says you got to follow that schedule? And, you know, and he had been such a good soldier his whole life, you know. And he says, well, that's the way we've always done it. And I'm like, yeah, so what? It's HBO, you know, new, a new idea. We are so hot right now. What are you going to do, fire you? If you say, I want three months off, I want six months off, whatever. Uh, it, it, when we come back six months later, will the show have been forgotten and, and, and go down the drain? I don't think so. You know, will they fire you? I don't think so. You know, I said, fuck them. You know, it's more important to us and to them that you are in good shape mentally. You know, that you are not exhausted. You, you need, you need to re, you know, refuel here, man. Take, take whatever time you fucking need. You know, and, uh, and he did, and he did. And that changed the entire, <laughs> it changed cable TV forever because everybody started doing it later, you know, taking, you know, little extra time here, you know, coming back 14 months later and 16 months later. But, you know, but it was important at that time that I thought, you know, this guy is going to just kill himself uh, here. And what good is he going to be for anybody and burned out like that? You know? What are a couple of your favorite episodes? Well, you know, I, I never watched the whole thing from the beginning, but I, but I watched some of the first season, uh, they, they were doing a marathon. Right. And, and I, and I, I had seen the, uh, you know, the new one, the, the new uh, many saints, you know, so I kind of put me in that Sopranos mood. So I watched, I watched the, the, the first season and, and, uh, it's amazing how well it holds up. Honestly, it, it's a, it's a, it's a pretty unique show. Um, I mean, thinking back, my favorite scenes were, were, were two things, you know, working with Jimmy, um, you know, I just love working with him. Uh, and I remember a scene that, you know, where I come in and I gotta, I gotta give him bad news and it pisses them off. And, you know, I like, I like that scene a lot. And then, uh, you know, a very rare scene with my wife, cause, uh, mostly the guys are with the guys, the girls are with the girls and, uh, we had one scene when, when uh, Tony Soprano's in the hospital and Silvio has to take over and, uh, and uh, she's, he's getting dressed and then she's there, you know, doing a little bit of the uh, Macbeth thing. Uh, but it was, it was, uh, that was, uh, those were two, the two scenes that stand out in my mind. Okay. You talk about your political awakening, being in Europe, being asked questions about America. And there are a lot of vivid scenes about that. Democracy is in crisis. What do you think of the political world today and what you or anybody in the music business or music can anything can do about it? Well, that's, uh, that's a good question. Um, 
I think we're in big trouble. I think we're in the biggest trouble uh, of, uh, possibly of our history, uh, certainly since uh, 1860. I think we are very much on the verge of a second civil war. Oh, here's my dog waking up. We are in uh, huge trouble uh, right now. Um, and I keep asking, where are the tough good guys? That's uh, because we're in a war and, uh, and only one side's fighting it. And I felt this way for a long, long time. And arguably, this war goes back to our founding. Uh, you know, like it or not, admit it or not, we were founded as a male dominant white supremacist, um, Christian nationalist oligarchy. That's how we were formed. Uh, that's what most of our constitution said. And, um, um, Luckily, we had a few more enlightened founders who snuck in there the liberty and justice for all bits and pieces that we've been trying to live up to ever since. But at this point, the uh, Republican Party has completely returned to that same position um, and even, even more anti-American and un-American than that, uh, you know, they, they just have lost all interest in democracy, uh, in, uh, in equality, uh, and, and even in science. So it, it's, um, we've become, uh, we've become this, this dangerous, uh, dangerously close to, to, um, civil war. And, and I see it's not just us. It's, it's, it's the problem is all around the world. I, I just did two tours around the world and, it's a mess all over the place. You got uh, problems from Australia to Indonesia to Hungary. You know, uh, either it's either it's fascism uh, or it's uh, religious extremism, and and, uh, and we got both going on here. So 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 you know, um, I'm hoping the Democrats wake up. Uh, if they're the only game in town that's left. But um, what they're doing to this Joe Biden, I mean, I, I, I you know, you got to love the guy and I root for him every day, but he's not getting the, you know, it's been one unforced error after the other. I mean, just the concept of bipartisanship is just uh, uh, a, tr a tragic uh, sort of frame of mind when there is no buy. You know, buy means two. There's, we don't have two legitimate political parties anymore. I mean, if people were trying to make him sound and act like a senile old man, they couldn't do a better job of it, okay? Uh, there is no bipartisanship possibility now. Uh, that was the first unforced error. Merrick Garland, I mean, really? Uh, was, was Don Knotts not available? <laughs> you know? I mean, an attorney general, it should be Malcolm Nance. It should be, you know, and people, well, he's not an attorney. I don't, we, I don't, we don't need an attorney. We need a general, you know? Uh, Afghanistan, an absolute disaster. I don't care what anybody says. I'll argue this all day long, okay? All we had to do was keep Kabul, keep one town. With, they had at least 150,000 soldiers. People are saying 300,000. Let's cut that in half. With 150,000 creating an impenetrable perimeter. We could have kept the two air force, the two bases and Kabul. And, and I think a few more cities as well. Now, what does that accomplish? That accomplishes the main goal 
of all of our foreign policy, which should be don't allow any more Islamic states. All right? There's only four, you know, and, and, and they are the epitome and the ultimate example of human rights violations by definition. This is a problem with Palestine right now. I've been fighting for a Palestinian homeland my whole life. I'm not going to do it while Hamas is in charge. Forget it. All right? Not going to happen, man. All right? I don't believe in human rights violations. And that's what Sharia law is, and that's what Islamic State is. And, and we just gave it to them, man. And what does that mean? That means those 2,300 cats died in vain. They died for nothing, just like the 50,000 died in Vietnam. It's exactly the same thing. Okay? When you, when you're, you know, in this case, they had a really good reason to die if we had kept uh, Afghanistan, uh, you know, at least a city or two, kept it from becoming an Islamic state. There's plenty to justify then, just for the women, the women's rights alone uh, justifies that, you know. Then those 2,300 died for good reason, fighting Islamic extremism. That's something that's, that's a war worth fighting every day of the week, you know, any religious extremism. But certainly Islamic, you know. I mean, is the you know, and, and, and instead, you know, we I mean, how can he follow Trump's plan? The, didn't alarm bells go off if you're doing something that Trump suggested? What the hell's the matter with you? And the and, and Klein and all the guys around him, what were they thinking? Uh, you know, yeah, let's get out of the forever war. What about the forever war in Japan and Germany and Korea? What about that? We're there for a reason, and it's a good reason, you know? Uh, it's, it's called keeping an eye on things so we can maintain some freedom and democracy and all those good things, man, you know? Instead, abandons Afghanistan, you know, and God knows where that's going to go. It, it ain't going to be good. But it's one unforced error after the other. Cuba is another one. Yeah, follow Trump's plan on Cuba. What a good idea, you know? Cuban right wing have been pissing me off ever since they got here. You know, they hate for they hate the Castro brothers so much that they want to vote for Trump. That makes sense, huh? You know, come on, man. I mean, these people don't give a shit about their own brothers and sisters in Cuba. That's what pisses me off. You know, they think a boycott hurts the fucking Castro brothers. What the, what planet are you on? You know, they're idiots. They're idiots. You know, and, 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 and you know. Of course we should normalize relations with Cuba. Of course we should, you know? Anyway, one unforced error after the other, man. And, and you know, and right now, uh, it, 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 you know, these two, these two fucking low-life Benedict Arnold twins, Mansion and Cinema, are going to kill the Democratic Party and kill Biden's presidency, and they may be killing democracy. That's how bad things are right now. I mean, 20 states are already passing laws. 20 states, right? They're already passing laws, not just voter suppression. That's what everybody talks about. It's voter nullification. Everybody needs to learn the word nullification. That's what's going on. And that means it doesn't matter who you vote for. Suppression can be overcome. It, it shouldn't exist, but it, should, but it can be overcome. Like, like you know, Stacey Abrams did in, in Georgia. She overcame it. Nullification is a whole nother trip. That means it doesn't matter who wins, they throw the votes in the garbage can. 
And the state legislature decides who wins, which is exactly what Trump was trying to do, you know, last, last election. Well, now what's happening, for real, you know? And I mean, we are in big trouble. And I don't see, I don't see the good guys rising to the occasion here, man. We'll see. We'll see how they, if they go after the subpoenas, you know, for January, the January 6th, uh, you know, if they actually put these suckers in jail, then all right, you know, maybe, maybe we got a chance here. But I don't see it. I mean, look, well, at, the, look, at, the, look at the sentences they're getting. Look at the sentences these guys are getting. You know, for trespassing, you know, six months for, you know, violation of, a, of some curfew or something. I mean, they try to overthrow the government, man. What, what kind of sentences are these people getting? You know? I mean, it's just, you know, you keep placating and placating and placating. And we've done it all of our lives, man. What what other country puts up statues and names army bases after the cats who try to overthrow the government? Only us assholes do that, you know. I mean, placate, placate, placate. Don't don't want to piss them off too much, you know. They only tried to end America. They only tried to overthrow the government, you know. We don't want to piss them off too much. I mean, what the fuck's the matter with us? Where are the tough good guys, man? You know that that. Uh, so I I don't know, man. I don't know where we're going here, but. It ain't looking good. It ain't looking good. Okay, I thought that once they got rid of abortion, there'd be riots in the street. Needless to say, that didn't happen. By the same token, we had spontaneous demonstrations around the world with George Floyd. What will be the trigger to make those on the left wake up and take action? Well, that's that's a, that's a good question because it should have happened by now. It, it doesn't help. When all the anchors on TV use the word abortion instead of equal women's rights. Because that's what we're talking about. We're talking about women's equal rights. What they do with those rights is their business. You know? And, and, and every time we say the word abortion, 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 it's like we like abortion. Nobody likes abortion. Who likes abortion? Nobody. Okay, and if you're serious about not liking abortion, there should be a lot more sex education. There should be condoms everywhere for free, and a and a healthy encouragement of oral sex. If you get rid of abortion, you get rid of rape. So what's the problem? <laughs> right now in Texas, a father can rape his daughter. All right, and then get ten thousand dollars reward <laughs> for the bounty if she goes to take. If she goes and tries to have an abortion. He can get paid for raping his daughter in <laughs> Texas. Okay, I mean we are insane, man. We're losing our minds, and and, and I, I wish I could answer that question, Bob. That's that's the question. What's it going to take for these guys to wake up? I don't know, but Joe Biden, he, you know, he's living in the past, man. I'm sorry, you know, he's the right guy at the wrong time, and uh, and Obama was too. I hate to say it. You know, as much as I just love the fact that we can elect a black man <laughs> right. in, a, in a country this prejudiced, I mean, it was, you know, it was a miracle. But, you know, again, you know, bringing a knife to a gunfight. Now he's not even bringing a knife to this gunfight. He's bringing, you know, I don't know what, you know. And, and, and I mean, it, it can't go on much longer. I mean, 2022 is around the corner. Okay. Did you happen to watch, uh, do you watch Bill Maher? Yeah. Did you watch yeah. the new rule last uh, Friday night when he played it out? 
I, I, I think I was on the show last Friday. Was I on the show last Friday? Oh, yeah, you were on. <laughs> <laughs> you were on the first segment. So, right. did you, so just uh, like no, the Sopranos, I, did, you watch, did you watch when he played it out with the legislatures, et cetera? No, I, I had to go to another event. No, it's that. everything we know. I mean, you know, what's going on uh, where they have their own slate. They're, you know, they're, they're taking away the power of the Secretary of State, the people in charge of, right. you, know, uh, you know, it's like it's all obvious that what's going up now is fighting yeah. fighting the veracity of 2020 is not about getting him back in power. It's about winning in 2024. That's right. And 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 and, and really 2022 is all they need. They don't even need 24. All they need is three more votes in the House and one vote in, in the Senate. And it's over. Biden becomes, you know, Jimmy Carter. Okay, just a couple of things that I'm gonna let you go. So you literally talk to Bruce every day. What do you talk about? And how long was that period where you were kind of on the outs? We, um, you know, I, I talk about our three, our three big fights of, of our lives and, and, and we rec- reconcile pretty quickly, you know, from all of them. Uh, we don't, we don't leave it out there too long, you know, and I think that comes from our basic bond, which is, you know, really pretty solid uh, coming from when we were kids and, and we were the only other freak in town, man, you know, and, uh, you know, if you're the only freak, you know, maybe there's something wrong with you, but if there's two of you, <laughs> you know, maybe there's hope and maybe there's, you know, maybe you're onto something, you know, and I, and I, and I, we really needed each other at that age. And I think that really bonded us forever, you know? Um, so I, when we fight or, you know, we have disagreements, they don't last too long. They really don't last too long. But you literally connect with them every day? Uh, yeah, almost, almost. You know, you know, we might, might miss a day or two here and there, but we text, you know, or something. You know, but what do you what do you talk about? Whatever's going on, you know, just like any two friends. You know, we were, you know, rooting for rooting for his daughter in the Olympics. You know, and man, that was something. That was exciting. Come away with a silver medal. You know. Uh, and we talk about all kinds of th- different things. We're, um, you know, we're doing a big event this uh, this Sunday. He's going to interview me about the book, and uh, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever. whatever. Okay, yeah. so let's say hypothetically, I wave my magic wand. You are completely in control of Bruce and the E Street Band. What <laughs> should be their next step? What should be the direction? If you are in charge. <laughs> well, I, I think I think at this point it's just it's just it's just kind of obvious, isn't it? I mean, we uh, you know, hopefully this virus will cooperate and uh, with a little bit of luck we can be back on tour next year. Um I think you know, playing inside might be a little bit dodgy for a while. So maybe we'll probably start outside. You know, it, it would be my guess. And I'm guessing right now, okay, with your magic wand, I'm guessing, uh, you know, but if we do go out, it'll probably be go out for two years. I would like to go to some new places. I, I always do. I, I'm always uh, arguing for that. Um you know, uh, maybe a little bit more time in the Far East, which we don't spend much time in. You know, maybe Dubai. So maybe Israel, just to piss off those boycott people. You know, I would just like to do that for, for since you know they've been they've been you know as obnoxious as humanly possible, and we never even had it on the schedule. 
You know, it was like, how dare you think about playing Israel? And I got to hear all of these adolescent insults from these idiots. I'm like, we never even thought about it, but I'm thinking about it now. <laughs> you know, you know? <laughs> I mean, uh, so, you know, I, I like to go, I like to go to places where we have been. It's always fun to break in a new crowd, you know. I mean, China, man, you know. We got to get to China soon. I went to China for one day. <laughs> I was trying to get my radio show on there. And um, I wanted to be the first Western DJ in China. Start them off right, you know. <laughs> and uh, and I talked to some people. And I said, you know, do many people come play here? And they said, well, we don't really like live music too much. And I was like, what do you mean? They said, well, we're so, we're, they're so used to lip syncing, uh, you know, that, that live music just sounds too sloppy. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh man, we got to get to China soon before it's too late. You know, I mean, you know, we got we to start changing those heads around, man. Come on, you know, it's too sloppy. We take great pride in our sloppiness, you know. But anyway. <laughs> but the only thing, you know, in terms of records, you and me both know the landscape has completely changed. The acts in the Spotify, Spotify Top 50 are nowhere near as big as the acts of the 60s, never mind the 70s and 80s. And if you are an act, you could put out a record and people don't even know. So I was thinking Max Martin, who I barely know, met a few times, talked a few times. He started out as a real rock musician. How about if Bruce tried to make a record with him? You know, the, this is what Paul McCartney did about 20 years ago with Nigel Goodrich. He worked with, uh, you know, Radiohead. And then Nigel said, you know, I think you could do better on a song. This is writing a song. And Paul McCartney says, I'm Paul McCartney. No, I, I know it's done. But I think, you know, that you talk about Hungry Heart, Landau had Dancing in the Dark. I think there could be another one. Well, I, 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 you know, you, you can't rule it out because because there's no there's no real rules. Um, I, I think uh, I think well, what happened the first time it could happen again, which was a real groundswell. We we were so popular live, there started to become a problem for radio not playing us. You know, there's there's a certain point if you can actually get that groundswell going. I'm not sure, you know. It could happen exactly the same way, but I think it's possible, you know, that just in the middle of a, let's say our next tour really just explodes and selling out multiple stadiums everywhere, you know, you might have enough momentum to just start having radio uh, loosen up a little bit, you know. I, I, I don't know why classic rock refuses to play new things. I don't get it. I've done speeches at their conventions and talked to them. I know them all. Half of them are running my my show in syndication, and I'm like, why? You know, why would you play Hey Jude every two hours and not play a new song by Paul McCartney? Why Why would you play Brown Sugar every two hours and not play a new song by The Stones? You know, I don't get it. Uh, you know, I, I agree well, with you, but the ship has sailed. Radio is nowhere near as powerful as it once was. Both that's good because the gatekeeper's not as strong. That's bad because the rest of the world is a tower of Babel. Well, that's the thing. You see that that but that that but but, that, but the point is, let's just assume for the sake of discussion, there was that definitive track, which I don't think Bruce has had recently. But we we won't argue about that. You have that definitive track. Those people at Spotify, etc., 
They are dying to make their bones on shit like this. They will give it a good shot. These alternative sources, radio, yeah, the old people who listen to radio, et cetera, but the active buyer is online. I, I'm just, I, it's possible. I'm, I'm just not sure uh, the infrastructure that we now exist in, uh, you can have that mass shared experience. I, I, I don't know. I, think well, I, don't think, I don't think you can have it. It's too but, fragmented, isn't it? It's too fragmented. Yes, I mean, it is. But as you stated earlier, rock is at the bottom in terms of recordings, not in terms of live. Mm. So if you look at this track that Max Martin did with The Weeknd and the Cold, Coldplay, Coldplay was never going to have a hit without Max Martin. The song is not a one-listen smash, okay? But gigantic success. I'm not saying Bruce needs to sell out, but... You know, I had this discussion, oh, what the fuck is his name? You know, the Hopper, Dave Cobb, okay? I was talking to the manager, a good friend of mine, manages Garth Brooks. Garth Brooks very loyal to his people. I said, hey, you should work with Dave Cobb. And he says, you know, it's not my choice. Garth is loyal to his people. But I think, first of all, Dave Cobb would be a perfect match for Bruce. That's what he does. But if you want a single, you work with Max Martin, Worst case scenario, it's a learning experience. I'm not saying somebody to sell out, just to pull you into a different space. But I'll get off my soapbox and I'll go to my final thing here. Okay, you read the book. You've had so many experiences that if you die tomorrow, you know, you've had a great life. In the anywhere from one minute to 25 years you have left, anything le left that you want to do, accomplish, personal, career-wise... Well, I don't know. I, I, I really have, uh, in some ways, I just kind of discovered a whole new way of, of making records and writing songs, uh, which sounds funny because it's the way everybody else does it. But my last, my newest album is the first fictional album I've ever done, you know, and, uh, and, and, and fiction is fun. You know, it, it takes a lot of pressure off uh all this life and death stuff so i, I don't know I, I i wonder where that could go um i got five completed scripts and 25 treatments uh any of which i think would be really enjoyable tv shows i like to do more of that um live i, I love producing live events the most the the broadway show i did uh, i think was the high point of my artistic life uh, I, I, lo I love, you know, writing, directing, producing, and, and, and really uh, uh, doing something that is entertaining with substance live. I mean, there's nothing quite like live. So, you know, as, as much as I love TV, and I have a couple of movie ideas as, as well, um, I want to keep the Disciples of Soul going if I can. But, um, you know, I, I, like, I, like, I like doing a lot of things. So it's, it's just a matter of, of staying busy and uh, finding a patron to pay for it. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's, my, that's my goal in life, you know. And then maybe, maybe I'll achieve my ultimate goal in life, which is breaking even. Yeah. Okay, Stephen, this has been fantastic. I want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. Uh, my, my, my pleasure, Rob. Always good talking with you. Okay, till next time, it's Bob Left Sense.
Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Hey, hey, it's Malcolm Gladwell, host of Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Your elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Don't forget to pack the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies for a post-lunch pick-me-up. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies.